Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, translated into 195 different languages, we are the voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. Thanks very much for your questions and comments. Please keep them coming in. And remember to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done that already. We have a great show coming up for you today. Before we get started, I just want to take a couple moments to highlight a couple of my favorite companies. One is Liberty Clothing Company. Uh, They make this beautiful hemp chambray shirt that I'm wearing, which is like one of my go-to garments I go to all the time. They also make a whole line of hemp face masks. They have a ton of really cool designs. Check it out on their website. And I like Liberty in addition to the great products they make because they're women-owned, they're women-managed, and they're big supporters of The Last Prisoner Project. Another female-owned and managed company that I have been introduced to recently, they have great products, is Sisters of the Valley. They make this uh, beautiful hemp salve, CBD, mint, lovely, smells so good, I just want to go around like with this jar to my nose all the time. Um, They uh, have a whole story that you'll hear about further on in the episode. And of course, Remember to support the companies that help make this podcast possible, Homegrown and Harborside. We're going to get started today with our global wrap-up of cannabis headlines. In the United States, we're beginning to see the release of some long-serving cannabis prisoners. Our friends at The Last Prisoner Project announced positive developments in the cases of three different prisoners. At the end of October, Dante Westmoreland, a young Californian, was released from prison in the state of Kansas, where he had been sentenced to eight years after being found in possession of one pound of cannabis. Dante is now back in California, where the Last Prisoner Project has assisted him in securing housing and employment. Dante's main focus moving forward is retrieving his little brothers from foster care, They were placed there following the death of Dante's grandmother, which happened during his trial. LPP also announced that the longest-serving nonviolent cannabis prisoner in the United States, Richard DeLisi, will be released from the private prison in Lakeland, Florida, where he has been incarcerated, in time to spend the holidays with his family. Richard, now 70 years old, has served 32 years of a 90-year sentence for a large-scale cannabis conspiracy case. One can get a sense of the incredible injustice perpetrated upon him and his family by the fact that the state of Florida now has licensed several legal cannabis companies to grow, manufacture, and sell unlimited, that's right, unlimited, no maximum at all, quantities of cannabis under the state's medical cannabis law. And those companies, unsurprisingly, are now generating intergenerational wealth, right, for the lucky few that got those licenses. That's what's happening. 
Well, given that turn of events, we here at Radio Free Cannabis want to know when the rest of our sisters and brothers still incarcerated in Florida will be released. And in the state of Michigan, following a massive public awareness and lobbying campaign that generated hundreds of thousands of points of contact, the Michigan Parole Board has finally granted a public hearing to Last Prisoner Project constituent Michael Thompson. Michael is the longest-serving nonviolent prisoner in the Michigan state prison system. His release has been publicly endorsed by the Attorney General of Michigan, Dana Nessel, and we are hopeful that the parole board will follow the Attorney General's recommendation. Sadly, in Spain, things seem to be moving in the opposite direction. Albert Tio, one of Spain's most intrepid and determined cannabis activists, has been ordered to enter prison on November 18th for an outrageous five-year sentence. The sentence arises out of Tio's leadership role with the IROM Cannabis Association, one of several thousand cannabis associations that existed in Spain then and still exist today. The Spanish associations provide a self-regulated mechanism for cannabis consumers to access cannabis safely, free from involvement with the underground marketplace. Similar to the role that medical cannabis collectives played in California until adult use legalization in 2018. This is the great time that Albert is charged with, right? Providing a safe way for his fellow citizens to safely access Mother Nature's most valuable plant. Spanish activists have called on the Ministry of the Interior to pardon Tio, and he's also filed an appeal with the European Court of Human Rights. But as of today, has received no response from either of those organizations. Albert is managing the situation with his usual courage, saying he will take his sentence as a spiritual retreat and keep on working for cannabis freedom, even from behind bars. But make no mistake about the magnitude of this horror. Albert has already been saddled with a 2.2 million euro fine, which he's been paying off with community service work. He has two young children and a teenager, and now the state seeks to remove him entirely from his family for five years. Nobody, nobody should have to endure this kind of outrage, and the International Cannabis Tribe must respond ferociously, ferociously to these kinds of attacks upon us. We'll have an update on Albert's situation and how all of us can help him and his family in the next episode of Radio Free Cannabis. But one thing is clear right now. It's time to launch the European branch of the Last Prisoner Project. Every person and every company who's legally making money from cannabis in Europe has a moral obligation to defend the activists like Albert Tio, who have worked for decades to bring the truth about cannabis to the public and thereby have created the market from which many companies are now deriving fat profits. If every seed company and grow store and equipment manufacturer in Europe kicks in just a little bit, we can start seeing some of the same kind of prisoner releases there as we've been seeing in the United States. Remember that none of us will be secure in our freedom until all of us are truly free. And please reach out to me or to The Last Prisoner Project if you're ready to help in Europe. I'm 
very sorry to have to report this next piece of late-breaking news from Grass Valley, California. The valley has long been known amongst cannabis connoisseurs as the source of some of the finest weed in California, and therefore the entire world. A 36-year-old woman, whose identity has not yet been revealed, was shot and killed after she and a male companion resisted an attempted robbery on Saturday, November 17th. Seven men from Texas and Louisiana were subsequently arrested for the crime, which apparently involved the theft of 30 pounds of cannabis. This murder and robbery are not an isolated incident. Things like this happen all the time in the underground cannabis market all around the world. But they're exactly the kind of thing that the legalization of cannabis in California was intended to prevent. Unfortunately, the extremely high cost of obtaining legal cultivation licenses has forced the vast majority of California's small cannabis growers to remain in the underground market, where they're subject to the kind of robbery and murder that we just saw in Grass Valley. Cannabis activists and grower advocates have loudly and repeatedly called on state agencies to reform these onerous regulations and allow more traditional growers to access the safety of the legal market ever since those regulations were announced. But so far, very little progress has been made. We can only hope that this latest tragedy makes the cost of further inaction clear to California's legislators and regulatory agencies and moves them to action. On the other side of the globe, in Pakistan, the first country in the world to declare itself an Islamic Republic, Prime Minister Imran Khan, a former international cricket star, has been accused of consuming cannabis and other illegal substances by a former teammate. Prime Minister Khan doesn't appear to have publicly responded to the allegations and just days after the charges hit the news media, the High Court of the province of Sindh rejected a petition to allow the carrying and consuming of hashish. This suit was filed by Ghulam Ashgar. Ashgar, who described himself as a man of humble means, acting in the interest of his neighbors, argued that cannabis consumers were noble and decent people, that cannabis is now legal in many countries around the world, and that the laws were used by police to harass poor people. He also observed that legalizing cannabis would increase income and tax revenue in Pakistan. Sadly, the court dismissed our brother Ghulam's well-reasoned arguments with the humiliating suggestion that he leave Pakistan and go to a country where cannabis is legal if he wants to consume it. That reminds me of this slogan that the fascists used to have in the United States, America, love it or leave it. Well, this isn't a new debate in the Islamic world. Uh, scholars have been arguing over whether cannabis is haram or halal, approved or forbidden to believers, almost since the birth of Islam. That dispute has long been a part of Pakistani life, and it sometimes gets violent. Today, the countryside of Pakistan is sprinkled, heavily sprinkled, with shrines to Sufi saints that offer these beautiful Thursday night gatherings with music and dance and ritual consumption of cannabis, and they're very popular with local residents. Sadly, tragically, 
horribly, uh, these gatherings and these shrines are sometimes attacked by radical jihadists. And in the last 15 years, there have been at least 29 attacks that have killed and maimed hundreds of Sufi worshipers. But still, they continue to gather and continue their sacramental consumption of cannabis. What makes all of this very poignant is that in September, with its eyes set on the lucrative global cannabis market, Imran Khan's government legalized the cultivation of cannabis for industrial and medical purposes. At the time, Science and Technology Minister Fawad Chaudhry predicted that the hemp market could bring a billion dollars to Pakistan over the course of three years. Like Thailand, Pakistan's development plan for the legal industry initially limits cultivation to government-controlled facilities, but envisions later opening it up to private farmers and companies. So in Pakistan, we see the same familiar pattern that we've seen in many places around the world, from Thailand to Colombia. Governments that are hungry for cannabis dollars are building these robust export industries, but they still deny this kind and gentle plant to their own populations. And, and, and frequently, they even unleash crackdowns on domestic cannabis consumers at the same time they want to profit from the global trade. Well, what these people have failed to factor into their calculations is us, the international cannabis tribe. At the end of the day, we are the consumers who will drive the market. It is our dollars who will determine who the winners and losers in this new industry will be, and we will use that power to reward our allies and to punish those who seek to keep us oppressed. Contrary to popular rumor, there's nothing wrong with our memories. Now we'll continue our coverage of cannabis reform in South Asia with an in-depth report on Nepal from one of the icons of truly independent journalism, Bill Weinberg. Thanks, Steve. The tradition of cannabis cultivation, hashish production, and sacramental use goes back millennia in Nepal, and the country was among the last to sign up to the global prohibition regime. Now, a legalization effort is underway in Parliament, even as eradication operations continue. A typically fruitless campaign to suppress hashish production continues in Nepal, with eradication operations especially targeting the Terai, the lowland region in the south on the Gangetic Plain near the Indian border, which is the heartland of production. Last month, the Nepal Police Force announced destruction of 31,435 cannabis plants in Belaka municipality of Udayapur district in the Terai. Police also boasted the destruction of 1,540 plants in other Tarai villages over the course of the multi-day operation. Police also said that cannabis cultivation was encroaching on the Koshi Tapu Wildlife Reserve in Palaka, which shelters Nepal's last remaining population of wild water buffalo. But there's a certain irony to invoking cannabis as an ecological threat. The Tarai is also Nepal's most intensive region of rice and wheat production. Inevitably, cannabis cultivation falls to poorer farmers who were pushed by the threat of eradication into marginal areas on the edge of the agricultural frontier, where they have no choice but to eat into forests and natural areas. 
Fiskier has seen a bid for Nepal to return to legal cannabis cultivation. Back in January, a group of 45 lawmakers from the ruling Nepal Communist Party introduced a bill in the federal parliament's House of Representatives that would legalize cannabis cultivation with an eye toward the international medical marijuana market. The bill's lead sponsor is Birod Katiwada, who represents Makawanpur district, where the Tarai meets the Himalayan foothills and a key cannabis cultivation area. Marijuana has multiple uses, Katiwada said upon introducing the bill. It also helps earn foreign currencies and produce medicines, he added. In March, a second bill was introduced by Representative Shir Bahadur Tamang, also of the Nepal Communist Party. This measure, dubbed the Cannabis Farming Management Act, seems to stand a better chance of passing. Critically, it accepts the European Union's official limit of 0.2% THC for legal cannabis cultivation. So this measure is clearly about legalizing hemp, not marijuana or hashish. It wasn't until 1973 that cannabis was outlawed in Nepal with passage of the Narcotics Drug Control Act, bringing the country's legal code into conformity with the single convention treaty. The very day after the bill's passage, the 19th century Singha Durbar Palace that hosed the parliament was destroyed by fire, probably in protest of the cannabis ban. It has since been rebuilt. But the incident appeared to exemplify the deep cultural roots that cannabis has in Nepal. As in India, sadhus, or wandering spiritual seekers, and devotees of Shiva have used hashish ceremonially for centuries. At the Maha Shiva Ratri, the great festival of Shiva, it is practically a duty for devotees of the god of destruction and regeneration to partake in bang, bang lassis, that is a yogurt drink spiked with roasted and pulverized cannabis bud, also flow freely at Holi, the spring festival, which falls on the full moon after Mahashivaratri, and also involves partiers throwing colored powder and paint at each other in the streets. The government is wise enough not to try to suppress millennia of cultural tradition. On both holidays, the streets of Kathmandu are filled with spiritually elevated revelers. But it remains to be seen if Nepal, even under a communist government that claims to represent the interests of the oppressed, will give a dignified place in the country's economy for the hashish producing peasants of the Tarai and make Nepal the first Asian nation to legalize cannabis. For Radio Free Cannabis, this has been Bill Weinberg with the Global Ganja Report. Thank you, Bill. We so appreciate your focus on traditional cannabis farmers and look forward to your next report. We're going to continue our examination of cannabis reform in South Asia now with a short report from one of our newest activist correspondents, Priya Mishra, reporting from India. Priya, what have you got to share with us? Well, first of all, India, as we stand in November 2020, has six states legal, namely Uttarakhand, Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh, Odisha, Jammu, and Manipur. You guys can put in the state name and cannabis legalization in Google News and get multiple, you know, multiple news links on the same and get access to the news, the data available. What is legal? 
apart from these six states for cultivation, manufacturing of medical products and industrial products. India always had cannabis associated to its religious sacrament, Shiva. No ritual, or as we say, puja, is complete without the cannabis leaf as far as Shiva is concerned. Shiva is called the God's God. That means he's the highest entity. My first memory of the plant is while my mother celebrated Shivratri and cannabis leaf was a very important part of it. So why am I telling you this? Because in India, you can buy cannabis leaf in a government authorized shop in places like Banaras, Pushkar, Ujjain, Jodhpur and many more. So it seems that in India, like in the United States, there's differences in state cannabis laws and federal cannabis laws. What can you tell us about that? So today, federally it is accepted but not recognized. So federally or centrally, as we say, they accept the plant. And Dr. Jitendra Singh, who is a part of the cabinet ministry, tweeted a few times regarding medical cannabis and its benefits. Yet, there is power with the state governments regarding this, and they take their time on the same. That means a patient, let's say today in Karnataka, needs to either travel to Uttarakhand, Jammu, Madhya Pradesh, or fill up Form 7 and get the medicine to him or her in Karnataka. Yet, there are so many loopholes that the state government can put this person behind the bars. This is another one of the patterns we see repeatedly in cannabis reform all around the world. The pace of change is uneven, and us activists grab a foothold wherever we can. Those footholds often come first at the state, provincial, and local levels, like it has in India, like it did in my home state of California. And we seize on those footholds, and we do our utmost to make as much change as we can as quickly as we can, because we know that people's lives depend on it. Priya, thanks for this quick look at cannabis reform in India. Could you close us out with a few words on how you see the way forward? So we need to take the psychology of, uh, you know, exploitation away from this particular subject. For a simple fact, it is saving way too many lives. There are still no deaths, you know, counted as far as cannabis is concerned. But with peanuts, thousands of people die every year. So let's have a basic understanding and vote for change. Ask. Uh, put our suggestions and ask the government to change the law. And I'm really thankful, uh, you know, to Steve D'Angelo and this entire network for uh, giving us the platform to share our voice globally. Because we are one family. The entire earth is one family. And we all need to work together in the same manner. You guys have got the theory part, uh, you know, the law part more experience. We still have the indigenous strains and the ancestral knowledge which people are dying with and we would need your help to globally get the recognition. Thank you so much. Namaste. Thank you, Priya, for your kind appreciation. You inspire me too. Seeing young activists like yourself taking up the torch of cannabis freedom all around the world is the most precious reward I could ever ask for all the work that I've done. We are all so important to each other. Being a cannabis activist, especially in the earliest days of change, isn't easy. 
It means standing up against ignorance and stigma that's incredibly widespread. It means risking the disapproval of friends and families and employers. And sometimes, in some places, as we've seen, it can mean being arrested, put on trial, and imprisoned. Yet we still continue to stand up even knowing the risks. We stand up because we know that this kind and gentle plant is the best way to heal our bodies, our souls, our societies, and the planet. The stakes are just too high for people of good conscience to remain silent, and so we continue to stand up, even when the odds are against us. And in that spirit, I'd like to welcome another one of our newest activist correspondents, Nicole Lonergan, bringing us a report from County Cork, Ireland. Thanks so much, Steve, and thanks a million for having this platform for advocates around the world to speak up about what's happening with cannabis in their country. When it comes to Ireland, I wish I had more positive news to report, but unfortunately, there's so much scaremongering and misinformation in regards to cannabis being perpetuated by our media, the Gardaí, which is our national police force, and also by our government, who refuse to listen to our needs, as well as some individuals in the mental health services in Ireland. There's two articles that I want to bring to people's attention today. The first was to come out of the Irish Examiner on the 4th of November, and it was an article about how the Gardaí are saying that the public are helping to tip them off about cannabis grows and people with cannabis in their possession in the community. The Gardaí openly stated in this article that they consider cannabis and other drugs to be a scourge on every community in Ireland. This opinion was somewhat validated further down the article by a, an apparent addiction specialist who stated that cannabis and its abuse and its effects long term are comparable to that of heroin, crack cocaine and benzodiazepines. Now, to say that this outraged a lot of people in the Irish cannabis community is an understatement. And it was really heartwarming and a positive sign to see so many patients and consumers and supporters of cannabis law reform in Ireland to contact that treatment centre where that man was employed and complain about his comments. Uh, they were inundated with calls and emails uh, in relation to that. I had the opportunity to speak to this counsellor myself and we had quite a heated discussion, but we remained civil and heard each other out. I explained to him that any perceived harms associated with cannabis use and any concerns he had would be alleviated by a sensible legalisation plan being put in place in this country, but he wouldn't accept it. I pointed out to him that while cannabis remains illegal here, our government are communicating to us that they are content with an illicit market controlling the cannabis industry. They're content with millions and potentially billions of euro worth of revenue slipping through their fingers instead when it could be funneled into our communities and in helping to prove or improve our society. He didn't really want to listen when I explained that, you know, if we had a legal system in place, we would be keeping it cannabis out of the hands of minors because if it was sold from a licensed premises by an educated vendor who required ID, this would go such a long way to helping to prevent youth abuse and use of cannabis. I also pointed out that any concerns he had about high THC levels would be reduced by again implementing a legal marketplace whereby all cannabis and cannabis products would have to be tested for potency, for quality, and they would all have to be labelled with the cannabinoid content that each product or flower contained. This would mean that a licensed, educated vendor would be able to serve that particular person with cannabis that suited their individual physiological needs. That would go massively towards helping reduce harm. 
we're constantly bombarded here by all these sensational headlines saying the cannabis worth millions of euro or hundreds of thousands of euro has been seized by the Gardaí. But these figures aren't coming out of any kind of mathematical equation or law. They're just being plucked from thin air. Gardaí in Ireland value each cannabis plant they seize at 800 euro. And it doesn't matter what state of development the plant is in. So it could be a little tiny one or a full flowered plant. 800 euro, that's about $950. And how they weigh flower, or sorry, how they value flower as well is really problematic because I think they just throw a value of 20 euro per gram at it and they don't exclude the weight of any packaging or anything like that. It doesn't make sense. It's unfair to make it appear as though Gardaí are targeting criminals and having a significant impact on crime with these cannabis seizures and cannabis arrests. They're, they're not. Anyone from the outside looking in is believing this and believing that they're doing good work. But all they're doing, we know as cannabis consumers, are further stigmatizing, marginalizing and criminalizing decent people in our community who don't deserve to have a criminal record and definitely wouldn't have if this law wasn't in place. And that brings me to the next article I want to talk about. This is quite disturbing, I found. Uh, it was the case of a man, 70 years old, an ill pensioner, who was caught in November 2019 with cannabis in his possession. The Gardaí searched his house. The man openly and fully admitted to uh, owning all the cannabis that was in his house, stating that he used it for creative purposes. He was a musician. The Gardaí either didn't care or, again, they're just following a law that they're sworn to uphold. And unfortunately, this old man was brought before a court whereby he received a two-year suspended sentence only under the condition that the Gardaí were given permission to search his home at any time they saw fit over a two-year period. This can't continue. The Irish government are not acting on this. They're placating us. They're ignoring us. They're dismissing us. We're receiving the same old rhetoric of we all, oh, we have such a problem with alcohol and tobacco. Why would we want to possibly legalize another drug? We want to do it because, or we should want to do it and they should want to do it because it's the right thing to do. Cannabis prohibition causes harm. And this isn't about people just wanting to get high. This is about people wanting to heal themselves with cannabis, to be able to have the right to choose and get a legal safe product that's been tested and labeled and they can go into a store purchase it bring it home and just relax thank you nicole you are so right what we ask for is simple and reasonable the same rights as our fellow citizens no more and no less we want to be able to choose a safe natural remedy over pharmaceuticals and alcohol we want our supplies of that remedy to be safe and affordable and we want to be treated with basic human dignity. Cannabis activists all over the world carry this same simple message, each of us in our own way, with our own style, and in our own interpretation of the lessons that cannabis teaches us. Coming out of California, one of our boldest and most striking advocates is longtime activist Sister Kate, and she's going to tell us more about the Sisters of the Valley and the good work that they're doing. The Sisters of the Valley is a new age order of nuns. We're not patterned after Catholic nuns, we're patterned after their predecessors, the Beguines. They were known for their excellence in making medicines and textiles and soaps and such in the castles of Europe in the 800s. The Sisterhood was founded in late 2014. We opened our doors for commerce in 2015. We were founded here in the Central Valley of California, but we now have satellite sisters in LA and in Humboldt as well as new enclaves in places like Mexico, Brazil, New Zeal Zealand, 
Denmark, Sweden, Belgium, and England. The sisters support ourselves by making hemp-based salves, tinctures, teas, and medicines that we distribute around the world. Uh, we believe that one day science will prove that cannabis is like honey and local is best for people. And so our intention is that over time, our medicines do not have to burn fossil fuels to travel that just like weed maps can find a dispensary anywhere, we hope one day that we have an app for the sisters where wherever you are in New Zealand, Brazil, Mexico, Denmark, that you can get access to our excellent products. We're eco-feminist. It means that we believe that the world would be a better place if women owned more properties, more farms, more businesses, and were more active in politics. We also believe that political activism and holding our politicians accountable for what they do and don't do should be part of the culture that we raise our children in. It's part of our culture and part of our lifestyle to be involved in activism. Um, we say our holy trinity is service, activism, and spirituality. The service is for the people, the activism is for the people, the spirituality is for us. Uh, our activism is really about living in a culture where Activism is a part of your day-to-day -day life. Thank you, Sister Kate, and I agree with you. For thousands of years of human history, women did play a leadership role in our societies. They were queens and priestesses and oracles and philosophers. They ruled nations and commanded armies and sometimes built empires. The presence of female leaders in business or religion or government has only become unusual in the so-called modern era. And I believe that one of the great tasks that cannabis has come to help us with is a rediscovery of feminine wisdom and a rebalancing of our gender relationships. This is a critical part of the cannabis freedom movement. Our work is not going to be done until women are as respected as men and are given commensurate rights and opportunities. As we close out this episode, I hope all of you are as excited as I am with our new format as impressed as I am by our new activist correspondents. Hopefully you're getting a little taste of what inspired me to create this show. Back at the end of last year, after I'd spent 200 days traveling around the world to emerging cannabis markets, four different continents, after I met cannabis activists from all over the world. And I discovered that even though we had all dedicated ourselves to this common mission, we were different in almost every way that you could possibly imagine. We came from different countries and spoke different languages. We practiced different religions. We were of different races and social classes and levels of education and income. We'd never even met each other before, but we fell in with each other very easily. There was an almost seamless mesh. We had a similar way of exploring the countries that we were guests in a similar way of treating the people we met there. We had revealing conversations about the deepest matters of mind and soul. We developed an easy comfort with each other and in a remarkably short period of time began to feel more like family than just friends or business associates. And at the end of the tour, after we all went our separate ways, I felt this real sense of loss. I missed them. And that sense of loss set me to thinking, to pondering about what it was that had produced this intense, this intimate bond in such a tiny short period of time. 
And as I thought through, over time, this vision came to me now that I call the One Tribe Vision. And I realized that regardless of our individual differences, no matter our individual backgrounds, all of us had grown up under prohibition, or at least under really intense stigma. We had all had the same set of experiences with cannabis. And out of those experiences, we had drawn a very similar set of lessons. And in turn, from those lessons, we developed a common value system. Wherever we came from, we valued individual freedom over the authority of a government or a religion. No matter what religion we spoke, we valued the preservation of nature over the accumulation of wealth. No matter our backgrounds, we valued creativity over conformity and kindness over cruelty and peace over war and love over hate. That's who we are, us lovers of cannabis. It's what we believe no matter where in the world we live. We have one value system. We are one tribe. And now, today, there's hundreds of millions of us. The United Nations estimates our population at 260 million, but we ourselves know that in reality, we're much, much larger. Collectively, our tribe is as large or larger than all but the largest nations and maybe larger than them. We're more diverse than any of them, but we're united by these unbreakable bonds of biology and of spirit. And now, today, the darkness of prohibition has finally lifted just enough just enough to allow us to begin to crawl out of these caves where we've been forced to hide, to begin to once again come together to introduce ourselves to each other and recognize our commonality. Radio Free Cannabis is designed to be a platform for this process of introduction and dialogue. All of us who love this plant are being called by the same voice to the same great mission, each in our own way, each with our own style and our own flair. The exact shape of this great mission, it's still a work in progress. We're just at the beginning of what we're going to become. It's a, it's a thing that all of us are gonna co-create together and none of us knows exactly what it will be yet, even though we know it's urgently needed. Lots of questions. I look forward to working through all of them with you in future episodes of Radio Free Cannabis. Please be sure to check out the individual platforms of our activist correspondents and reach out to them directly if you see ways you can learn from or help each other. I'm gonna sign off today with a special message for those members of our tribe still living in the darkest places of prohibition. Those of you who may have been rejected by your family, who may have lost employment or the approval of religious authorities that might face serious harm for even just listening to this podcast or maybe are being punished now for cannabis offenses. You are not forgotten. If you love this plant and hold her truth close to your heart, you will never be alone. There are hundreds of millions of us. We are your sisters and brothers, and we're committed to making as much change as is needed for as long as it is changes is needed in every place that it is needed until all of us 
all of us are able to live with the freedom and dignity we deserve, including you. So stay strong, be brave, do all you can to help each other, and I will see you again on the next episode of Radio Free Cannabis.